0: Good morning once again. We are going to pick up with the same subject from last week. We're going to talk about baptism again this week. Hopefully we're going to wrap up our study on baptism this week and then next week move on to something else. (coughs) Um, When we looked at baptism last week, uh, we looked at the idea of Is it commanded? Is it something that's required? And I think we covered that topic pretty well. Um, We identified what baptism was, how it was to be done, uh, who was to be baptized. We talked about the correlation between the blood of Christ, which gives us remission of sins, and baptism, which gives us remission of sins. So we tied that together in scriptures, showing the fact that just as Christ's blood is necessary for us to be saved, then baptism also is necessary for us to be saved. Uh, We looked at those trying to work to disprove some of the theories that are out in the world today and different uh, religious ideas that uh, do not accept baptism as being necessary for salvation. But as we saw between the correlation in uh, Matthew 28 and Acts 2, if Christ's blood is necessary for remission of sins, then by necessity baptism is necessary for the remission of our sins. We're going to look at, it again, uh, a little bit different approach this morning. Um, we identified the commandments that are found throughout Scripture. They can be understood and they can be obeyed. God will not demand more from us than we're capable of doing. When we look at Psalms 19 and verse 8, it says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is true with regard to all the commandments, including baptism. Because baptism is commanded in the scriptures, we saw in Matthew 28 and Mark chapter 15, we cannot argue whether we should be baptized. Scripture not only determines our behavior, but it also illustrates what that behavior should look like. In other words, scripture not only contains teachings regarding baptism, but also shows the action in practice. This is why the historical accounts that are found in the Bible are so valuable to us today. And Scripture is very good at doing that. God created us. God understands us. God knows how we operate. He knows how we think. He knows how we reason. God not only gives us his commands, but then he illustrates those commands for us. And we see that in, chap- in the chapters, first chapters of Acts. Sorry. <clears throat> When we talk about baptism and we see those examples of those who were baptized. We have to remember when we look back in the scriptures we're we looking at the New Testament. We're seeing Christ coming and delivering the message. We talk about Christ being the word. Which essentially means the word incarnate. God did not give us in the New Testament commandments on stone. He gave us commandments through his son. Christ came and he taught those commandments. And then he had his disciples record those commandments so that we would be able to learn and study from them. When we look in the scriptures, we see what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see the Son of God as he come, to the, as he came to the earth and he taught in the, the lessons that he gave us and examples he gave us and the commandments that he gave us. When we leave the Gospels and we move into the book of Acts, we're talking now about the Acts of the Apostles. This is what happened at that time frame after Christ had left earth. But he had left commandments to the Apostles and to mankind as to what they should do. When we read in the example of Christ, we'll see a, a number of times that Christ talks about healing someone he says your sins are forgiven you Christ can do that Christ is divine Christ is part of the Godhead Christ has the authority and the power to forgive sins immediately and he did so but once Christ left this earth we are now under the discipleship I guess of Christ through the apostles the apostles do not have that authority The apostles could not forgive sins immediately the way that Christ does because the apostles were not divine beings. They were not part of the Godhead. So there had to be a different method at that point. And that's what we see in the teachings of the apostles. That's what we see in Acts and these examples. The apostles are now picking up the ministry that Christ left off when he left the earth. Their commandment was to go into all the world and teach everyone the gospel, the good news of Christ, The idea of salvation of mankind from sins and how to get that salvation. And that's what they did in the book of Acts. And you do not see the apostles making a statement that your sins are forgiven you because they cannot do that. We cannot do that today. We don't have the authority for that. So the apostles give us in their example the method that we use today. And that was through Hearing the word. Believing the word. Repenting from our sins. Turning away from those things that we were doing in the past. Doing our best not to do those things again. Confessing the fact that we believe Christ is the son of God. And we believe Christ was the Messiah who came and offered himself for the salvation of our sins. And then being baptized in the example that he gave us for that remission of sins. We hear a lot in the religious world today, and we as mankind, unfortunately, love to take shortcuts. More than likely, if you've taken a vacation somewhere and it was a long drive, you pick the shortest route, more than likely. Now, sometimes you don't, but most people are going to pick the shortest route. They want to get there. They want to get that luggage unloaded. They want to get into that room And then they want to start their vacation. They want to drive four, five, six extra hours to get that done. Unfortunately, religious world is the same same way. People like to take shortcuts. And that's what we see in a lot of the world today. This idea that baptism is not necessary. You don't have to do that. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to uh, go under the water and be baptized and stuff. We can sprinkle you. Or, even today, we don't have to baptize you. We don't have to sprinkle you. All we have to do is get you to say this prayer. Okay, we talked about just a moment ago the example that the apostles gave us after Christ left. This is what we're supposed to follow. And the example the apostles gave us in Acts when they did their teaching after Christ left, every single case of conversion listed in the book of Acts involved There's not one single exception. But yet today we want to take shortcuts. We want to get around baptism. Such a simple act. It doesn't take you five minutes to be baptized. We get people trying to avoid it. But there is not a single case in the scriptures anywhere from Matthew to Revelation where anyone was told to say a sinner's prayer and receive salvation. So where does the religious world get this idea? It's not in Scripture. We talked before in lessons in the past, we have two methods of doctrine, right? God's doctrine in man's doctrine. Who are we to follow? God's doctrine, right? So if this idea of the sinner's prayer, if this idea of faith only is not found in the scriptures in any example anywhere, is this God's doctrine? Can't be, can it? So looking into this a little further, when we consider what the Bible teaches about baptism, we must look closely at the behavior of those who lived during the first century. Did they practice baptism by immersion? If so, why would we do otherwise? These were the ones who were to bring God's word to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. If they did it in this method... Does it seem reasonable there was a purpose of that? Did they feel a sense of urgency associated with baptism? If they did, should we treat baptism in any other way? Should Should not it be as important to us and as urgent to us as it was to them in the first century? Did they understand baptism was to play an integral part in one's salvation? If so... How can we teach something different? The examples recorded in Scripture cannot be ignored, for they show us how to put God's commandments into practice. We are to learn from those who obeyed God and avoid making the same mistakes as those who did not. And that's what we're going to try to look at today. We talked about the fact of who should be baptized last week, we're going to see some examples of that. When we look back in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 19... We go back, it leads us back to the Great Commission, which declares the universal nature of the gospel. And in Matthew 28 19 it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Mark 16 and 15 it says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. The saving gospel message is obviously not reserved for one race or for one nationality. God sent Christ who brought the gospel, the good news, to the Israelite nation. But what did he tell the Israelite nation? That it's going to be for the entire world. The promise of Abraham's seed was to bless the entire world, not just to bless the nation of Israel. Hebrews 2.9 declares that God died for everyone, I mean Jesus died for everyone. Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't get to choose who becomes a Christian and who doesn't. It's not up to us. We teach the word, we plant the seed and then that person make up their mind and then God accepts them if they truly obey. But even in this world today, there are still people who feel like people of other races, of other nationalities, should not be Christians. It's not for them. So that's not what the scripture tells us. We make the assumption that they may not accept it. But that's our assumption. I read an article a couple years ago. You think back to around 2015, and we saw on the news about the mass migration of people from the Middle East into European countries. And European countries were upset and they were trying to figure out what to do with this and they were worried about what would happen when all these people came in. One of the major concerns was that these people were Muslim. And they didn't really want them in their country. Their customs were different. Their beliefs were different. But what was really interesting when I read the article was the fact that a large percentage of the European churches were virtually empty in that time frame because the people of Europe had left the faith. They weren't coming to church. They weren't attending services on Sunday. They weren't coming and giving other means. They weren't coming and partaking of the Lord's Supper. But shortly after this migration, the churches in Europe were filled. Who were they filled by? The people who came from the Muslim countries. When they lived at home, they were forced to obey Muslim law. And they had to observe Muslim customs. But they didn't want to. They were forced to. Once they left that country and they were freed from those laws and those oppressions, they converted to Christianity. And they began to fill the churches that the people there had deserted. So we never know what might happen by teaching the word. We never know who might obey and who might not. The assumptions that we make are not always true. The urgency of the gospel of obedience is seen in Philip's teaching and baptizing of the eunuch. We see that in Acts chapter 8 again. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and instructed him to go to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And if anything, this will teach us the value of one single soul. On that road to Gaza, there was an Ethiopian man who was a high official in the court of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. Candace was not the name of a person, but it was a title. She was the queen mother who ruled in place of her son. In Acts 2, we saw many nations present at the day of Pentecost and the gospel message being preached to every person there. We continue to see the advancing of the gospel. But the scriptures do not look at culture or race or nationality, but at the spirit that God has given every man. There's no partiality in Christ. We're also told that this Ethiopian was in charge of the whole treasury of the queen, this is a man with immense power and stature in the nation of Ethiopia. This is a man that God wants Philip to encounter. While on his way home, the, the eunuch is reading from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit tells Philip to go and join his chariot. <clears throat> Philip has come upon this complete stranger in the desert. On this road, he asks the eunuch if he understands what he's reading. Many people are surprised to learn that the scriptures can be understood. A lot of people in the world today do not feel that they can understand the scriptures if they read it. They feel like they have to go to their minister, to their priest, to a scholar of some time to have them interpret the scriptures for them. But the Bible tells us it's for all men. It doesn't say we have to have someone read it for us. All we have to do is be willing to read it for ourselves. Other people have been taught that everything is a matter of personal interpretation. Notice when Philip is talking to the eunuch, when he asks the question, he says, what? He doesn't say, what is your interpretation of what you're reading, does he? He didn't ask the eunuch, what is your idea of what the scripture says? Philip asks if the eunuch understands the message. So we realize there is a message to understand and the scripture the unit was reading was not open to hundreds of different interp- hundreds of different interpretations on which no one can agree. Bible tells us the prophecy of scripture is not open to private interpretation. That means I'm not free to interpret the way I want, and you interpret the way you want. Someone else interprets the way that they want, and then we come together and say everybody's fine. What the Scripture tells us is there is an interpretation that God wants, and this book tells us how to find it, and that's our responsibility—not to decide what we want, but decide what God wants. All we know from the text that Philip was—all we know from the text is that Philip was preaching Jesus to the eunuch. However, the discussion about receiving the grace of God, having forgiveness of sins, and becoming a disciple of Christ is clearly involved in the discussion it's about baptism. We learn the importance of baptism in the scripture. If baptism was not important, if it was not necessary, or could not be done whenever one got around, or could be done whenever one got around to it, why did the eunuch ask to be baptized immediately? He was on a journey. He was an important man. He had taken time away from his home and his work and his business to come to Israel. And he was returning back. Now, most of us have had a job, right? We understand that once we leave that job, we take a vacation, we come back, there's a lot of work that's left, isn't it? It all piled up while we were gone. The other people in the office or on the line didn't come and do our work while we were gone. They just let it sit. And then when we get back, we have an overload. I'm sure it was the same with this person. Mankind is not that different from then to now. So he needed to get back. He had things that he had to do. And we realized from the scriptures that he was an important man that he needed to get him. But he stopped at that point and said, I need to be baptized and I need to do it right now. Regardless of what is waiting on me. He was excited to find water on this desert road and he wanted to use that water to be baptized. Many today teach that baptism is how you join their church. Does this make any sense concerning the eunuch? we're looking at the scriptures, what church could the eunuch be joining himself to alone with Philip in this place? On a desert road, no one around but the eunuch and Philip. What church would he be attaching himself to? Baptism is not to join a church. Others say that baptism is showing To show others your faith in God. What congregation was available on this desert road to see the faith of the universe? Who was he demonstrating his faith to? Since there was no one there. Clearly these are not the reasons for baptism. baptism. Baptism is not to show people your faith in God. Baptism is not to join a church. Baptism is to have sins washed away. We see that in Acts 22 and verse 16. The eunuch is ready to submit to the Lord and desires to have God's grace applied to him. If baptism was not important and was not necessary, then why is the eunuch asking such a pointless question? So we have someone who did not know about Christ, did not understand the gospel. He's joined by Philip. Now if you're looking to understand what the scriptures say... How much better person can you get to interpret it to you than who the Ethiopian eunuch had? And when Philip was through talking to the eunuch, he did not say, offer a prayer for me. He did not say, let me do this or do that. He said, baptize me right now. Well, that should be some indication what the scriptures regarding baptism and how important it is. If anyone wants to know what prevents him from being baptized, Philip responds, the only thing preventing baptism is the eunuch believing with all his heart. We see here an example of the necessity of belief. Believing in Christ is essential to our salvation. There is absolutely no question about that whatsoever. But it's not in the way that's portrayed by many today. The apostle explains to the eunuch that belief in Christ is not a precursor to his salvation, but it's a precursor to baptism, which brings about his salvation. Philip does not stop when the eunuch believes in Christ, and instructs him to offer a prayer to be saved. Philip immediately takes him down into the water and baptizes him. And then after the baptism, the eunuch goes away rejoicing. I mean, there was something else here too. After the eunuch believed, he didn't leave rejoicing, did he? He didn't leave rejoicing until after he was baptized. If he did not have faith, if he did not have belief, he would not have been baptized. But even though he had that faith, he understood that's not the point of his salvation. It's exactly what we saw earlier in Acts 8 when the Samaritans believed and were baptized. It's what we saw in Acts 2 and 41. It says that, so then those who had received his word were baptized. Through these eight chapters in Acts, we've seen people become disciples of Christ and receive forgiveness of sins in the same way, belief and baptism. As we said, all examples in Acts include baptism for remission of sins. Also, besides religious individuals who have never been baptized, individuals who baptize either in an improper manner or for the wrong reason have to submit to proper baptism. Find an example of this in Acts 19, verses 1 through 5. In this passage, Paul came to Ephesus and identified some disciples who were baptized into John's baptism. At this point, it was no longer valid. Despite being sincere regarding their previous immersion, The individuals were taught by Paul about Jesus and were subsequently baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Instead of arguing that their former actions were good enough, the men submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching and were baptized again. Why would anyone risk doing otherwise? We look a little further. We go over to Acts 10 and we see Cornelius. We've talked about Cornelius before. He was a Gentile and a devout man who feared God, the scriptures tell us. Careful study of the passage will yield a great deal of information about the centurion. First, the officer referred to God. So, why is that unusual? Any thoughts? He was Roman. He was Roman. He was an officer in the Roman army. What was the Roman religion at the time? The gods, the Greek gods. Of- Right? Romans had many gods. They adopted from the Greek. But he did not say gods. He said singular, plural, not plural. He said God. The depravity of the Roman religion is vividly portrayed in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Even before he heard the gospel message from Peter's mouth, Cornelius had already turned from idols to reverence a living God. Second, Cornelius, Cornelius believed that God was an observer of human activity and interested therein. He confessed, we are all here in the sight of God. The phrase not only suggested that heaven was aware of the meaning, but approved of it. Even the Hebrews had a difficult time on occasion conceiving the idea that Jehovah observes everything. When Jacob fled from his home, fearing the wrath of his brother Esau, he came to Bethel, and a dream God had spoken to him, renewing the promise that first had been made to his grandfather Abraham. When Jacob awoke, he exclaimed with obvious surprise, Surely Jehovah is in this place, and I knew it not. When Jonah was instructed by the Lord to do mission work in Nineveh, he sought to do otherwise. Rather than heading east to Assyria, he determined to go west to Tarshish and be away from the presence of Jehovah. So it's kind of remarkable that Cornelius had such a clear understanding of the aspect of God's nature. The Gentile officer was aware that saving truth was embodied in an objective revelation which would issue from a man he had been appointed by God to instruct him. The group, therefore, was assembled to hear the things, i.e. the words, to be spoken by Peter. Cornelius knew he had received no special message from the angel detailing the content of what he must do in order to be saved. He did not surmise that he could capture spiritual vibes from the atmosphere in some esoteric fashion. He did not subscribe to the view that he could merely follow the inclinations of his conscience. There's a powerful truth that legions today who are searching for answers in every place but the right one need to learn. There's only one place we can find the answer, and that's in the Scriptures. The centurion acknowledged the sovereignty of the Almighty God. He confessed that the Lord had commanded certain things which human beings were to do, and he was anxious to humbly submit to those. In the Scriptures, the word commanded here translates to arrange toward or to prescribe to order or to command something as a decree that's issued by a sovereign ruler. The verb is passive in form, suggesting that God is the giver of the commands and that we humans are the receivers. It's also in the perfect tense reflecting an action that has occurred already, but the results are abiding. The fact is this, God had commanded and his will, to res- well, his will was to remain unbroken. There would be no disputing it. This was truly an amazing concept for this Gentile to have perceived. Even previously, Peter had questioned the Lord, and not Cornelius. He recognized that he could not selectively obey the Lord. All was the goal. He said that they were present to receive all things that the Lord had commanded how many there are today who would be so happy if God only allowed them multiple choice obedience? It would be wonderful, wouldn't it? If God gave us the scripture and said, just pick out the things that you like. And as long as you follow those, it's okay. What kind of world would we live in? Yes. We understand what most people would pick, right? Multiple choice is great on tests, right? When you're in school. I've told uh, Kelly before since she's in school that when I was in college, I had one teacher come in. Don't believe she thought this out very well. She gave us a test. that was about eight or ten pages long. She said, you work the problems that you want to work, and I'll grade you only on those. I found one on the first page I knew the answer to, and I turned it in. There were people in there for hours taking that test. Great if the gospel was that way, right? If we could pick one thing that we wanted to do and we knew we were saved and we would never have to do anything else, that would be great. Is that how the gospel works? I got one, no. Anybody else? No, no. Then where do we get faith only? Gospel doesn't work that way. They would gladly believe if only they could dispense with baptism or else they would be immersed if they didn't have to repent. Initially, Naaman the Assyrian was not terribly disturbed about dipping in a river, cleansing from his leprosy. He just fought the Lord's location in the ceremony. He needed to learn that deliberate partial obedience is not obedience, is it? Centurion concluded the authority of Peter, an apostle, as a spokesman for deity. He suggested that he and his family were there to hear the From Peter, the things that God commanded his apostles to tell them. Peter's words would carry as much weight as if the Lord had spoken to him personally. That's what the scriptures are supposed to do for us, is it not? Christ had all authority. Still has all authority. But then he gave authority to his apostles. Who recorded for us. So the words that the apostles spoke, the words that are recorded in scripture... Should to us have just as much authority as if Jesus spoke them to us Himself. Going further, the urgency of baptism is based on its attachment to salvation. One cannot possibly be saved by living in sin, for sin deserves the punishment of death. You see that in Romans 6 and verse 23. The wages of sin is death, and it takes a death to atone for sin. We cannot offer our own lives for our sins. Since we would die in a sinful state and be lost. It took someone else to atone for our sins in order for us to be saved. We could not atone for our own sins. Thankfully, baptism is capable of washing sin away. It's the very thing Ananias affirmed when he addressed Saul of Tarsus, encouraging Saul to obey. He declared, Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. When Saul was on that road and Christ appeared to him and he reverenced him, he reverenced him as Lord. He understood who Christ was. He understood the authority that Christ had. He obeyed what Christ told him to do. He said, go to Damascus and wait. And then he's going to send someone to you. He didn't question that. But we can understand at this point that Saul had faith, but yet when Ananias got to him, he said, wash away your sins, be baptized. So if salvation was received at the point of faith, Saul would have been saved on the road, but Ananias told him he wasn't. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins, we must conclude that we contact his saving blood when we're baptized. <clears throat> Peter's statement in first Peter three, twenty one and twenty two establishes the connection between baptism and salvation in maybe an even clearer way. Peter likes baptism to the water that cleansed the earth during the days of Noah. Just as Noah's flood removed wickedness from the earth at that time, baptism removes sin from one's conscience. So Peter wrote, there is also an antitype, something that's foreshadowed by a signal, which now saves us. Baptism, not the removing of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It also does not mean baptism is our Savior. It does, however, mean that baptism is an instrument through which God exerts saving power the connection between baptism and salvation cannot be ignored. When we look back at the uh, flood, God sent the flood upon mankind. There's the flood on the earth to cleanse the earth. What was he cleansing the earth from? Sin. He wasn't cleaning debris, right? He wasn't sweeping away old brush and trees. He was cleansing the earth of sin. And Peter says here that salvation is an antitype. Salvation is the same is what he's saying. Cleansing us from our sin. I actually read something last week where a guy was trying to interpret this verse and he was saying, well, this means like taking a bath. You're washing the dirt off of you. That does not correspond to what Peter says. Peter says, this is exactly like the flood. We're cleansing the sin from you. The baptism. And then you say this is not a bath to put away the filth of the flesh. Right. Uh, you know, when he says that, that's a an good conscience towards God. You go back to Hebrews chapter 9 look at verses 9 and 14. It kind of ties it together. In verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Which was a figure for the time then present, in which... Uh, they offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the sacrifice perfect that pertained to the conscience. Mm-hmm. He, they couldn't make that conscience perfect. In the mm-hmm. Old Testament, if you go down to verse 14, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, <coughs> who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, to serve of the living God. How does it conscience that conscience? Right. The conscience. That cleans the conscience and no reason... We can cleanse the conscience is by the removal of that sin. So we look a little further here about God's part in baptism, and we're about out of time. So as a result of baptism, God redeems the penitent believer through the blood of Jesus Christ. As a result of baptism, God forgives the penitent believer of his or her sins. As a result of baptism, God adds the penitent believer to Christ's church. As a result of baptism, God sanctifies the penitent believer by making him or her part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. As a result of baptism, God justifies the penitent believer freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. As a result, the Bible teaches that baptism is a burial in water for the remission of sins, that by necessity excludes any and every other opposing doctrine. The Bible is simply what man has made confusing. The Bible in itself is not confusing. But man makes it so. It's like we've discussed before. If you're discussing a topic and the person you're talking with goes around and around and around and around and around to get to their supposed biblical point, you can be pretty sure that they're not correct. Because the Bible is very straightforward. God does not ask us God commands us, right? when the command is given, it's usually not vague. All right, thank you very much, and that'll conclude our study on baptism, and then next week we'll move on to another topic.